When I analysed the data from the current Scottish Land Fund, it immediately became clear that most of the grants were going to buy buildings and building plots. I'd also realised that thanks to the £4.5 million buyout of the island of Ulva, which mainly used cash from the fund, Argyll and Butte would be seen to have benefited disproportionately. The biggest surprise was the number of apparently publicly owned properties that still have to be bought by communities. With all that in mind, I first asked John Watt, the chairman of the fund committee, whether the rush to buy buildings was expected. The land fund is, is very much community-led, it's demand-led. We've set out a series of guidance and policy instruments as to what it's for, and communities have come back to us in large numbers, and this is what they are interested in acquiring. And as you'll know, the Community Empowerment Act and the various other pieces of legislation that extended the powers of communities to get involved in urban as well as rural projects and buildings, small community plots of woodland, uh, small uh, plots for development purposes have been very popular for communities wanting to acquire and buying large estates at large prices has been rarer than we perhaps originally anticipated. It does seem that some areas get hugely disproportionately more money from the land fund than others and that the most notable of course is Argyll and Butte which has got uh, more than £8 million, and that's £101 per head of population, according to my sums. Is that fair? And this is taxpayers' money. Everybody pays into that tax pot. Why should Argyle and Butte get all that money? Well, as I say, we're demand-led. We haven't made area allocations. Uh, We haven't made per-head allocations, to date at least. We tend to base it more on the kind of projects that are coming forward. We judge the projects from their strength, their ability to achieve the programme objectives, their longer-term sustainability, community support for these projects. Argyle Butte, for various reasons, has been a hot spot, if you like. We do tend to try to identify cool spots, and we've had promotional efforts in some of those cool spots where we haven't had so much coming forward but again we don't go out and force people to buy land. Cool spots where would they be? There's been various parts of the I suppose more the the east coast and the northeast coast have been places that have had less for quite a long time the south of Scotland was cool spot. Um, Uh Dumfries and Galloway in the borders less was happening than we would have liked but that's changed so Area targeting is not something that we've focused the door, we've simply responded to the demand that's come our way. Many of the properties that have been bought with grants from this particular iteration of the Land Fund have, have already been in public ownership, police stations, schools and certainly Forestry and Land Scotland land. Should we not be looking for a mechanism to get these handed over rather than you know, one bit of government coming up with these grants and giving it to another bit of government? Should we not be looking for a mechanism to just get that land handed over and, and then the, the money could be spent more on, on privately owned land and property? I think that's a, a legitimate question. The process by which communities purchase publicly owned assets is exactly the same as whether it's a private one or not. Interestingly, I mean, this can be done either through an amicable sale between a local a public body and the community, and that happens probably more often than using legislation and the community asset transfer legislation 
which is now being increasingly used, is a recognised process of communities acquiring publicly owned assets. These are subject to independent valuation like any other sale. And interestingly, we are now seeing many of these public bodies will give a significant discount to communities, but there's no legislative requirement for them to do so. But communities are encouraged to negotiate as much of a discount for, for these assets as they possibly can. And in some cases, they're effectively transferred at a very, very low value. Other times, they're nearer the valuation, but almost all of the transfers from public bodies to communities are at a discount of some form or other. But your question about the effectiveness of uh, one public body paying a community to pay another public body is something that probably would require being looked at a bit more depth. There have been suggestions that the fund could be increased, even doubled. Given there's been a bit of an underspend, do you think the demand there is growing and, and developing still? Well, I think the demand is growing still. We've certainly noticed our pipeline year on year has got bigger and bigger. We've suddenly got these very big ones have come in, uh, which we haven't had in the first four years, with the exception of one uh, of the fund. And because of the, of the pressure on the budget, because of the demand in the pipeline, we haven't been able to fund them to the level requested. And we're having to say no to applications perhaps more often than we would prefer. We've got two more meetings this financial year. I'm anticipating at the moment that they'll be requesting an amount of money that's perhaps nearly double what we've got left. The Scottish Government won't commit to the fund's renewal until after the Holyrood elections. Callum MacLeod, who's the policy director of the Buyout Umbrella Group Community Land Scotland, will be urging them to get on with it was critical really amongst all the other elements, the legislation and the support mechanisms and so on that have been helping to develop and encourage more community land ownership in, in rural but also in, in urban places uh, to ensure that the land fund itself is there after the next election and there's a, a commitment to ensure that it, that it is there because it's fundamental to delivering on that community ownership agenda and in terms of the range of different economic, social, environmental aspects with regard to that. So we're at Community Land Scotland will be, we are calling for that kind of commitment from whatever the next government is and to make sure that that actually happens. And we've also argued strongly that it should be increased as well in terms of its funding. At the moment it has a, an annual budget of £10 million. We're calling for an increase of that to up to £20 million. And the reason we're saying that is because recently, but this is a more general point, the whole COVID-19 pandemic has showed how it's really important for communities to actually have the capacity, infrastructure and resilience to respond to uh, challenging circumstances. Community Land Scotland has just recently published a report which documents what's been happening amongst community landowners in doing that. And we've seen stories of where they've been able to respond very quickly to provide vital services for the communities that they serve. A big part of the reason for that has been because they have that sort of organisation, that capacity in place that ownership has, has been able to provide for them in many cases. And so the land fund itself is, is really, really important in terms of um, helping to encourage fundamentally so, more 
community ownership of land and indeed built assets as well. Now you've been talking about this in the context of a rural new deal. This is just an element of that. So what would that involve? We have a very concentrated pattern of land ownership here in Scotland, still in, in rural Scotland. Uh, and we've seen the problems and issues that are associated with that when we think about uh, the negative aspects of it, the, 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 the negative impacts of monopoly land ownership, predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly private land ownership. Um, and so having land reform and diversifying uh, patterns of ownership is, is very basic to that rural New Deal itself, but also thinking as well about how we um, think about addressing the, the demographic crisis that we have in rural Scotland too, because we, in very many parts of rural Scotland, we've got communities that are actually losing their populations, they're demographically skewed, so they're shrinking and they're aging at the same time, and that's clearly challenging for their sustainability in the longer term. So we need to think about that. And we've argued that community ownership is one important mechanism of ensuring that we can actually address that depopulation crisis and that demographic crisis. You, you talked quite clearly about it, about it aiding the land reform agenda, but the figures that I've got from this iteration of the land fund indicate that between uh, 65 and 75 percent of the actual individual schemes are for buildings or building plots, small areas of land for building on or just buildings themselves, pubs, schools, old police stations, that sort of thing. That clearly isn't really a land fund in that sense, is it? It definitely is a land fund in the sense that it is actually looking to assist communities to develop assets, their land assets clearly in terms of the actual land itself, but also associated assets. And um, in urban communities, I think particularly, you're clearly not going to get the same type necessarily of assets being pursued as you do in, in some rural context. So you're not going to get the large estate buyout clearly. What you're going to get in urban situations often is where there are, well, there are buildings, and there are pieces of land. The buildings are on land as well, of course, effectively. And it's, it's about what these assets are actually going to provide for communities themselves. So there is some flexibility, of course, in terms of thinking about what you're actually looking to acquire and what you're going to do with it as a community. And let's face it, in terms of, 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 the, of the land assets themselves, uh, it will be around what you can do with enough. There are, are buildings associated with that. It's around what you're doing with them and what you're doing with the land itself. So from an urban perspective, I don't think it's problematic at all that there are communities that are actually buying buildings as part of what they're doing for their, their communities, because often they have associated land elements to it as well. Now, Argyll and Butte in particular has got more than £8 million. That's four times as much as Highland per head. And I don't know, I can't do the maths, but it's, it's only three quid ahead in Glasgow. That's a huge disproportion. Why is that, do you think? I guess part of the calculation for Argyll and Butte will be the fact that the other buyout accounts for half of that. So that's a significant component in terms of explaining some of that. You're right, it's very interesting that there's, there are these uh, differences with regard to the regional elements. What I think that points to, Richard, is the need to ensure that other areas build on what, uh, what looks like the apparent success, as it were, of Argyll and Butte with regard to accessing funds and, and, and putting the cases they've done in terms of their applications there. So we need to kind of spread that out 
much more widely. We've seen examples recently in the south of Scotland where buyouts have proved successful and kind of building up that interest there is really important. The kind of key point there, I think, is how do we actually mainstream and normalise this idea of community ownership of land and assets in order to help communities be more resilient, be more sustainable and actually deliver the benefits that they aspire to for themselves. And part of that is very much about having the, the right support mechanisms in place, the funding models in place to enable that to happen too, because we've called for £20 million for a, annually for a new Scottish land fund after the next election. That would be really important and it would be a really kind of important kind of public investment in these communities. But getting that more widely uh, dispersed across Scotland is, is, is very important in terms of geographically mainstreaming it as well as uh, within urban and rural communities. When it comes to land reform, Andy Whiteman is perhaps the best known figure in Scotland. He's a Scottish Greens MSP and the party's spokesman on land reform and he's urging a different approach. The Scottish Land Fund has proven to be a very useful um, tool in promoting the community ownership of land. It's almost 20 years since it was established. In fact, I was a member of the first Scottish Land Fund between 2001, I think, and 2006. And at that time, it was run by the National Lottery. And we sort of jealously defended our independence in making judgments as to what awards should be made. And there's no doubt that the reviews that have been conducted to date have shown that the fund has been extremely useful. Money, finance is obviously a key issue when it comes to transferring land into community ownership. But particularly since the fund has been run directly by Scottish government using public funds, I think that puts it into a new area in the sense that this is public money that has to be much more directly accountable to the public as to how it's spent. And given we've had uh, 10 years or so of the current iteration, I think there are some serious questions to be asked about not only its continued usefulness, which I imagine people will say that it is useful and will be useful, and I broadly anticipate that there will be a need for this money going forward, but more what can we learn from the last 20 years to inform us as to the best ways of promoting community ownership, because of course money's not just the only thing. And one of my particular concerns is the fact that the funds that are awarded as grants to communities is uh, being transferred straight into the pockets of private landlords. Uh, and we have very overvalued uh, land. And I have a concern about the efficiency uh, with which public money is being used in this regard. So I think at this juncture, it would be appropriate to conduct a full review of what the fund is for, what it's trying to achieve, and what other public policy interventions might be made that would make the fund more efficient and perhaps introduce new financial devices as well in addition simply to capital grants. Now, land prices are a big factor here. What can we do about that, Andy? Well, one of the main concerns I have always had is that uh, land in Scotland is overvalued. Basically, uh, the price of land is determined by the price it will achieve between a willing seller and a willing buyer. And because Scottish land is subject to virtually no, indeed no, real regulation, anyone from anywhere in the world can come and buy as much land in Scotland as they like. And that marks us out in contrast to most European countries where land is not available in the same quantities and it's certainly not available with the same 
ease. The UK is a, a stable democracy, so it's a good investment. And land in Scotland's particularly desirable because of the international image that Scotland has and also because of its scenic beauty and our natural resources. And that means that the price paid for land in Scotland is way, way more than its economic value. In other words, if you or I were to go and buy a factory or a business as a going concern, we would look at its annual profitability, its medium-term prospects, goodwill in relation to our customers, our product and where it's placed in the market and the future for that. And we'd pay a capital price that was intended to give us I don't know, a 3% or a 5% or a 8% return on capital, whatever we were looking for. But when it comes to land, and you take places like the island of Ulva or other instances where literally millions of pounds have been paid for an asset, which is probably economically worth about a quarter of that. And I don't think that's a sustainable position for public funds. And so we must find a way of, I think, reducing the price of land. And there are two broad ways of doing that. I mean, one is to reform the tax system so that land ceases to be such a, a profitable asset to invest in. When I say profitable, I don't mean on an annual basis. I mean that it retains its capital value very well and is subject to limited taxes. So we transform the fiscal environment and we also introduce more regulation because if we introduce more regulation on land sales, it means that the market becomes tighter and more constrained and you'll ease out some of the kind of hot money that periodically has come chasing after Scottish land of whatever type. So interventions in the fiscal environment, in the regulatory environment, could begin to bring the price of land down. And that would mean that a fund like the Scottish Land Fund could go further. And it also means that um, local communities who wish to acquire land can use what funds they have, or more of the funds they have, to actually invest in the land for the future. You've also suggested that the Scottish Land Fund could be used in part to lend money to buyout groups. How would that work? Yeah, one of the issues with the Scottish Land Fund is it is public money. It's an annual budgetary process allocating a £10 million or so per annum, which is dedicated to the fund, and, and most of that uh, goes in transfer payments to existing landowners to sell to, to communities. And in that sense, it's a constant call on the public purse. Now, in recent years, there's been more use of what are called financial transactions money. That's uh, money that the Treasury makes available to the Scottish administration um, to be lent. And this is the main mechanism through which the Scottish National Investment Bank will be operating in the next few years. If land has important economic potential that can't be realised in the short term, but could be realised in the medium to long term, then I think there's a role for... Uh, the public sector providing either very, very low interest loans or, or, or indeed in part zero interest loans. And that would ensure that some of the money comes back into the system. I think it would be a useful discipline as well on owners. And it wouldn't be novel for many community landowners who are already borrowing uh, money. The problem is they're often borrowing money at quite expensive rates of interest. And so, yes, I think alternative financing measures, and that includes things like crowdfunding, community shares, a much more flexible approach to finance, is one of the areas I think a review should look at. Now, in analysing the fund, we also found you could really call it a building fund because two-thirds of the grants are going towards building. Um, it's also There's also been a move, clearly, to 
urban buyouts as well. Is all that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm fairly neutral on that. Uh, right from the beginning of the legislative process on community right to buy, I was very keen that it should apply to the whole of Scotland. There shouldn't be any uh, geographical or other restrictions on it. In fact, there were. Now it's applicable across the whole of Scotland. Now, to the extent that the Scottish Land Fund was designed to facilitate community ownership, in that sense, I think urban community ownership is extremely important. That's where most people live. Uh, that's where we have pockets of quite severe deprivation. So, yes, I think our Scottish Land Fund uh, should be just as available to urban as is to rural. It may be that urban land should be treated a little bit differently in terms of how it's funded. For example, many communities are buying community assets which they anticipate earning some revenue from, and that kind of revenue can be quite easily forecast uh, because you've got a, a marketplace there. You've got lots of people who live in urban Scotland. And so those kind of purchases, um, instinctively, you would say, might be best um, or could at least in part be financed by by soft loans. So, yes, there may be a case for changing the funding mechanism, but that's, again, why we why we need to look at this closely. But I've got no fundamental objection to the Scottish Land Fund being used to support urban ownership. Now, the first fund, the one that you were involved in, um, actually managed to give grants to buy 170,000 acres. This one, with more than three times as much cash, will only give grants to buy something like less than 30,000 acres. Will this kind of thing make any dent in the land ownership imbalance in Scotland that you've been so forthright about? No, it's not going to make much of a dent. And indeed, bringing land into community ownership was never going to make much of a dent in that. I think it was misleading for some people in the early days to pretend that we were going to be able to transform the pattern of land ownership in Scotland through what the World Bank called um, market-assisted land reform, whereby one seeks to acquire the land uh, in the market, albeit sometimes on a more regulated basis, like through the community right to buy. That was never, ever going to happen because there's a lot of Scotland that's a big country and land is very expensive and there's not enough money to buy it. So it was clear to me right at the beginning that we were going to have to invent and evolve new mechanisms and new processes and indeed further land reform if that ambition of breaking down that concentrated pattern was ever to be realised. So to the extent that people now still continue to think that a land fund and a community right to buy is going to transform the pattern of land ownership, they're wrong. I mean, it never was going to, and it it really can't. So, yes, uh, that remains an issue. And, of course, to break down the concentrated pattern of land ownership, one needs more land reform. One needs to reform the law of, of inheritance. One needs to give more opportunities, not just to community bodies, but to all sorts of other people, individuals, uh, cooperatives, mutual associations, people who want to get together and acquire land and manage uh, commercial forests, for example, or other kinds of business. So it's really about making sure that we open up the land market and the potential that land has to deliver social, economic and environmental benefits to many, many more people, including community groups. But it has to go much beyond just community groups. So now let's come to the geographic spread of fund grants. Argyll and Butte getting £101 a head, uh, more than £8 million for that one area that's got uh, something like 85,000 people living in. Is this the right way of doing things to have it concentrated in certain areas? 
the fact that we've had a lot of applications, a lot of successful grants being awarded in one local authority, uh, like Argyll and Butte, is a product of the fact that lots of people in Argyll and Butte have made calls on the fund and they've been successful. To that extent, they should be uh, congratulated. Now, the fact that there is geographical disparity is an issue, absolutely is an issue. One should never have a fund of public money that goes on for years and years and years without being fundamentally reviewed and questioned as to what the money is being spent on, where it's being spent on, could it be better allocated, are there new criteria that should be introduced, etc. So it raises an important question. And what I would say a review needs to look at is, yes, to, to try and explain that, but also to see whether, in fact, the benefits that have accrued to places like Argyll and Butte could also accrue to other parts of Scotland, but will might have to be adapted in those areas to provide support in some other way. And that leads me to also question whether, in fact, the fund should be continued to be administered by you know one central committee appointed by Scottish ministers, because that has a weakness as well. So should we be looking at the fund being administered by some regional boards or is there an other governance structure for a fund like this and that's that's a legitimate question to ask i see no reason why local government shouldn't be a partner at least in delivering the scottish land fund and i also think you know as part of this review we should consider whether we should just have one fund or whether we should have bits of the fund that are dedicated to as we were talking about maybe an urban fund maybe a rural fund maybe an, an, a fund for economically fragile areas as opposed to more prosperous ones so it's about nuance it's about tailoring the fund to the different needs and priorities of different parts of scotland uh, and it's about who makes the decisions and how that's accountable so that's that would be part of in my view part of the reason why we need a fundamental review now the last piece of analysis that, that really caught my attention and it really did surprise me with this, was that almost a third, well, 49 out of 170, 170-odd uh, buyouts were for buildings that were already in public ownership. That includes things like visitor centres, police stations, um, schools, forestry land. It's quite surprising that communities should be paying for these assets using government money. One of the things that really surprised me was that they were buying town halls, which would very much have been, back in the days of small local authorities, you know, community assets. I think as soon as you move, as we did move, into a publicly funded land fund, so it comes directly from public funds, that raises a serious question as to how you should treat the acquisition of public assets. And there is a strong case for perhaps not supporting, not using public funds to provide communities with the funds to buy public assets. I think there's a case for doing that, but there's also a case for looking at alternative mechanisms for allowing greater community involvement in, in public assets. And that might mean, for example, just awarding long leases on peppercorn rents. I mean, there's no reason, for example, why the National Forest Estate couldn't remain ultimately in public ownership, owned by Scottish ministers, but communities could have 100 or indeed 150-year leases on it. So to all intents and purposes, they'd be community assets. 